Father, we thank you for the time of, of worship and fellowship we've already had this morning. We thank you again for uh, your, your providence and guidance in bringing the cheeks. In. And we thank you today that uh, you have brought us together as a body, Lord. We thank you for the fellowship that we have as a spiritual family. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that you've brought to each one of our hearts through one another. We thank you for the love we've experienced from each other. We thank you for the service that we've benefited from through one another. God, we thank you that we have a spiritual family that points us to Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word that you have inspired and preserved and translated so that we can open it together this morning so we can have it in our homes. Father, we thank you for the gift of access to you through prayer. We thank you that we don't need to come to you through a sacrificial system, but that we can come to you to the very holy of holies through the blood of Christ. Thank you that you're with us this morning. Father, we pray that you would be with our church family that is not with us right now, and that you would encourage them and bless them and and help them today by your grace. Father, we pray for the Kemps and the Johnstons and the Haynes. Lord, we ask that you would uh, encourage them in your word today and that you would uh, give them um, all that they need to walk with you and to worship you and to advance the gospel in the places that you've sent them. We pray for the success of their ministries. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing more intense forms of persecution. We remember them this morning, Lord, and we ask that you would uh, not only protect them, but that you would enable them through persecution to persevere and to hold hope for the day that Christ returns and that, Jesus, you do end all our suffering and sorrows. Lord, we pray you would come. We believe that we are nearer to the day of salvation now than when we first believed. Our hope is not in this world, but it's on the day that that you come and you make all things new. And so we pray for that this morning. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done until that day on earth as it is in heaven. Open our hearts now to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And over the last few weeks in Thessalonians, we've been in this series for three weeks now, we have seen Jesus fulfilling this promise. We've seen a picture of what that looks like. He's he's building his church from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And in Thessalonians, we've seen what that looks like. Here's how Jesus builds his church. He sends missionaries. He sends people. He sends ambassadors to those who aren't his people, just like he sent Paul and Silas and Timothy to Thessalonica, and and, and they preached the gospel to them. And and last week, Joey preached about what a faithful gospel ministry looks like. And, And we know that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they went to Thessalonica with the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they had boldness, and they had integrity, and they had affection, And they had strength, and and through their ministry, God planted a church. 
He, he brought into existence a group of people that were called out as his people there in Thessalonica. He, he, he brought a church to into being that wasn't there before. He, he brought it to being through the gospel. And then, not only did the church come into existence through the preaching of the gospel, but then the church turned around and, and became vehicles of that gospel going forward. As the Thessalonians received the gospel, they received it with joy and much affliction, and their testimony spread and resounded all across the region, even further than they could go. And so the gospel gave birth to the church, and then the church advanced the gospel. And that's how Jesus builds his church. That's how he did it then. That's how he's doing it now. That's how he's doing it here. That's how he's doing it everywhere. He's, he's bringing the gospel to people who don't know him. He's making them his people, and then he's spreading the gospel out from them, and he's building his church. Jesus' declaration did not end, however, with the words, I will build my church. The whole sentence goes like this. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, whenever the gospel is advancing, it's advancing into enemy territory. The kingdom of God is encroaching on the kingdom of this world. The king of heaven is turning those who are following the ruler of this world into followers of himself. And that means that wherever the church is being built, there will be warfare. Wherever the church is being built, there will be warfare. So the title of this morning's sermon is The Warfare of the Local Church. The warfare of the local church. And you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to cover a long section of text today. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 through 3.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 through 3.13. And in this section of the letter, we, we, have, we have seen that, that Paul is so thankful for the Thessalonian believers. And, and while most of his thanksgivings in his letters extend three, four, maybe five verses, for the Thessalonians, his thanksgiving really extends from chapter 1 through chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3. We're really just finishing his thanksgiving this morning. And, and what he's thanking God for is the persevering faith that he's seen in the Thessalonians. He, he's thanking God that they have persevered. He's thanking God that they are standing firm. And he's explaining in this section, he, he wants to explain to them why he hasn't come back. We'll see that. He, remember, he, he had to leave Thessalonica very quickly after the church was established because of persecution. And he's not been back since then. And, and it seems, as Joey alluded to last week, that there are people in the church who are trying to undermine Paul's ministry. Trying to say he was in it for himself, that he, he, he's, just, he's just a fraud. And, and, and so Paul is writing them, saying, we're so thankful for how you're doing. We're so thankful you're persevering. Here's, here's why we've not been back yet. And what we're going to see as we walk through this are four crucial truths about the warfare of the church. There's four realities in this text that we need to grasp this morning about the battle that we are in, the warfare that we face. And so we will walk through this text, and as we do, as we read this Thanksgiving, as we read this report, we, we will see these four crucial realities to help us understand the warfare 
that we are a part of, that Thessalonians were a part of, that every local church is part of. And so let's dive into chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And the first truth that we need to grasp is this. We have real enemies. We have real enemies. Look with me, verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. The wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul begins this section by thanking God. And what does he thank God for? He thanks God that when they came and preached the gospel, the Thessalonians heard it, And they understood this is not just the words of men. This is the word of God. He thanks God for that because God opened their hearts to to realize that that, that this gospel message that they're proclaiming, this this is God speaking to us. They received the gospel from Paul and his co-workers and they embraced it as the word of God, which Paul says it really is. He says our words really were the words of God. We really were his ambassadors speaking for God to you. And you embraced it. And we thank God for that. And then in verse 14, he says, here's how I know you embraced it. Here's how we know you received it as the word of God. He says, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Here's how we know you embraced it, Thessalonians. It's because you embraced the persecution that accompanies it. We saw this in chapter 1 already. The Thessalonians received the gospel, what was it, with joy and much affliction, right? With joy and much affliction at the same time. A combination you don't get anywhere else in the world, but that's proof that they received it as the word of God. Why else would they receive affliction when they received the gospel? Because they know that there's joy in this gospel. There's treasure in this gospel. And so Paul, Paul's thanking God that they received it, and then he's thanking God that, that the proof of that is that even in their persecution, that they continue to embrace it as the Word of God. And so what Paul does is interesting. He, he, he moves to talk about the churches in Judea and the suffering that they experienced from the Jews. And look how he describes the Jews in verses 15 and 16. Here's here's what the Jews did. He says they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove out the apostles. They displease God. And they oppose all mankind. So so they they killed the Messiah. They they rejected his messengers. And in doing that, they they displeased the God that they claimed to worship. And they also oppose all people. And how are they opposing them? Because they are keeping the gospel from getting to them. He says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They're opposing the advancement of the gospel, and that's displeasing God. 
And he says this fills up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And what the reality is with the Jewish people is that in this era of redemptive history, God has brought a hardening on them. That they have sinned, they have rejected, and though God is still saving some, just like Paul, read all about this in Romans 9-11, through that God has brought a hardening over Israel while he advances the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul prays in Romans, he says, I pray that they might be saved, and my heart is for them. But here he's very clear, they oppose the gospel, they oppose God. Why is he saying this? His point is not to rail against the Jewish people. His point is not to tell the Thessalonians, man, those Jewish people are so bad. He's one of them. He loves them. He's praying for them. But his point is that they suffered the same things from their countrymen as the churches in Judea did from the Jews. His point is not to rail against the Jewish people. His point is to draw a comparison that you're suffering the same things that they experienced. That just like the Jewish people opposed the gospel in Judea, now the Thessalonians are opposing the gospel in Thessalonica. And wherever the gospel goes, the world is opposing the gospel. The world is displeasing God. The world is rejecting God's people. And so this brings us to the first enemy of the local church. And it's the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world opposes the church. The unbelieving world opposes the advancement of the gospel. The unbelieving world opposes God. Just as Jesus said in John, if the world hates me, it will hate you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So we shouldn't be surprised when we face hostility from the world I mean, think about it. Unbelievers are living in rebellion against God, and we're his people. So, of course, they're going to oppose us. Opposition from the world is not abnormal. It's to be expected. It's not abnormal. It's not this out-of-the-ordinary experience that we need to get away from. It's something that actually validates that we are the people of God, and the world hates God, and so they hate us. Yet, With all that said, the unbelieving world is not our only enemy. Look down at verses 17 and following with me. Chapter 2, 17, Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. And so in these verses, Paul is telling them how badly he has wanted to see them, how how hard he has worked 
to get to them. He says that we tried again and again and again, but they couldn't. Church, why couldn't they get to them? Verse 18, Satan hindered us. It's a bit shocking to us to to think about how freely and how naturally Paul speaks of Satan's opposition here. I mean, imagine if you were going on a date, you're you're single, all right, you're going on a date, and, and your date doesn't show up, and they call you and they say, I really wanted to get there, but Satan didn't let me get there. All right, you, you, you would say, Satan hindered you? What, what really happened, right? What are you talking about? You would want an explanation. But Paul doesn't give us that. He doesn't tell us what he means. We really would like to know, how did Satan hinder you? He just says, Satan hindered us. That's all he gives us. All we know is that whatever happened, Paul understood their inability to get there as the result of Satan's intentional opposition to stop them. Satan wanted to stop them. They wanted to come and encourage these young believers in their faith, but Satan hindered them. Satan stopped them. It's it's the picture of a military traveling on the road and someone putting up a roadblock, a blockade, that you can't get past it. That's what Satan did. He hindered them. He stopped them. And so what did Paul do? He he said, well, well, finally, he said, let's stay here in Athens, but let's send Timothy. Let's send Timothy, and and he will go, and he will encourage them. It's important to see the reason. In in verse 2, he says it was to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. And, And so what are these afflictions? Those are the afflictions that they're facing from the world, the opposition that's coming from the world, that they're being persecuted. He's saying, we don't want these afflictions to move you from the faith. We're going to send Timothy to establish you, to exhort you, to encourage you in your faith. But then look at verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So, So do you see the connection he's making here? They are facing opposition from the world. The world is persecuting them. The world is against them. These are the afflictions they're experiencing. But behind those afflictions, the tempter is tempting them. Behind those afflictions, Satan is opposing them. He is against them. He is seeking for them to fall away from the faith. Behind the afflictions they face in the world are the malicious schemes of Satan against the people of God. These are the enemies of the local church. We have the world opposing God's people, but behind the world, working through that persecution, through that hostility, through that rejection, is the malicious schemes of Satan, opposing God, opposing God's people, opposing the gospel. There's so much we could learn about this and what our perspective should be when we face hostility in the world. And in the movie series, The Hunger Games, anyone here seen any of the Hunger Games movies? In the movie series, The Hunger Games, there, there's this totalitarian government that, that forces the districts every year to offer a young man and a young woman to, to be tribute. And, and what they do is they are forced to play in what's called The Hunger Games. And The Hunger Games are 
a to-the-death competition between, between all these young people. And, and it's, it's this government's way of, of cruelly reminding the people who has the power. It's, it's their way of, of oppressing them and reminding them of, of their power over them. And it turns these innocent young people into these cold-blooded killers. And, and it goes on year after year after year. And, and it's this, this awful, heart-wrenching thing for these districts to see their young people go and, and die while only one of them survives. And so the hero of the movie is, is Katniss Everdeen. And in the first movie, she, she undermines the games the Hunger Games, by in the last scene, she refuses to take the life of the last contestant. And, and this, this turns her quickly into a symbol of resistance in, in these districts. And, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the stage for the series, and it goes on from there, and, and, and she's, this, she's this symbol. And, and what the government does is they respond by making her fight again the next year. And so all of a sudden, she's back in it, and... And in this closing scene of this second movie, she is exhausted, she is confused, she is hurt, and one of the other contestants is, is close by, and she, she raises her arrow to kill him. And he pleads with her, and he cries out, remember who the real enemy is. Remember who the real enemy is. He reminds her that we're part of a greater fight. That they're pitting us against each other, but, but don't come against me. Remember where the battle really lies. This isn't us versus each other. This, this is us versus this government that's, that's doing this to us. And, and he, he reminds her, and she realizes that, no, this, yes, he's my enemy in this competition, but no, this is not where the battle really lies. You know, Paul was very clear about the opposition he faced in the world. I mean, he, he was persecuted, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned. He eventually would be killed by the world. Yet, though he faced all of this worldly opposition, here's what Paul still wrote in Ephesians 6. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are part of a war as a church. We face real hostility from the unbelieving world. But we should never return that hostility on the unbelieving world. When the world opposes us, our response should never be to try to grab for power or try to position ourselves so that we can have control or, or, or try to come back against the world. No, we need to remember who the enemy really is, where the battle really lies. Our battle is spiritual, and it is absolutely real. It's spiritual, and it's real. It's more real than any battle that we can see with our eyes. Wherever Jesus is building his church, Satan is opposing that church. And and this is the first truth we need to grasp about our warfare, is that we have real enemies, but we need to recognize that while the world opposes us, we we don't come back and oppose them. We, We oppose Satan, who blinds their eyes, who they are following, and we and we seek to love them with the gospel. We are part of a war with real enemies. Let's remember where the battle really lies. It's not a flesh and blood battle. We're part of a spiritual battle. 
The second truth about the warfare of the church is this. The victory belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to the Lord. Read verses 6 through 13 with me. Chapter 3, starting in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, so Paul sent Timothy, and how was Paul feeling when he sent Timothy to the Thessalonians? He was, he was worried, right? He, he was fearful that the tempter had tempted them. He was worried that, that this church was not established enough in their faith and that they had fallen away. But Timothy comes back, and, and he comes back with good news. He comes back with good news about their faith and their love. They, they were doing well. They were affectionate for Paul and the others. They were standing fast in the Lord. Just You hear the emotion dripping through for Paul. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What thanksgiving can we return to God for your sake, for all the joy that we feel for your sake, because you're standing fast. We feel so much joy for you. I want you to notice Paul's response to this news. First, he thanks God, and second, he prays to God. He thanks God for this news, and then he prays to God. So he thanks God because God is the one who has caused them to persevere, isn't he? God is the one who has caused them to stand fast. That's why he thanks God. He doesn't say, way to go, Thessalonians, you did it. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, and you did it. You're awesome. No, he says, we thank God that you're standing fast. We give glory to him because of that. And then he prays to God. He prays that God would see them through to the end. He prays that God would establish them. He prays that God would provide for them. God alone is the one who would establish their hearts in holiness at Christ's return. And so this is what we see. He thanks God for bringing them this far, and then he prays to God to bring them all the way home. You see that? He thanks God for bringing them this far, and then he prays to God, bring them all the way home. And that shows us that in this warfare, we have real enemies, but the victory does belong to the Lord. God is the one who provides the victory. And even here today, God has brought you this far, and God is the one who will bring you home. The victory belongs to the Lord in your life. Now, if you would, turn back with me to the book of 2 Kings. Book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. Here's what's happening in this scene that we're going to pick up in. The Syrian king is exasperated because the prophet Elisha keeps telling the king of Israel his plans. This is like a coach who tries to run a play and he keeps getting stopped, and he can't figure out why. And then after the game, he realizes they had my playbook. 
They knew what was coming. That's what's happening in Syria. Elisha is giving the king of Israel his playbook. And every time that he does something, he's, he's stopped in his tracks. And, and, and he finally finds out what's happening. He realizes Elisha's the problem. Elisha the prophet is the one that is ruining my plans. And so he, he gathers his armies to come around Elisha and, and, and to take this prophet captive so that he can not be stopped anymore. And so that, that's what's going on. If you would read with me, beginning in chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, just simple math here, right? They've got hundreds of chariots and horses surrounding them, and then you've got Elisha and his servant. And he says, there's more of us than there are of them. And the servant's thinking, my master has lost his mind. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And from then on in the story, Elisha has his will with the Syrians, and and they do not capture him or defeat Israel. And what we learn in that story is that there are spiritual forces all around us that are invisible, that we do not see, but they are real, and that we have a God who has armies on our side. When the world opposes us, when Satan opposes us, the reality is that there there are more than us of them. They are stronger than we are. That we, we cannot stand up against the opposition we face in and of ourselves. But we we have God on our side, and the, and the armies of God on our side in the spiritual realm. The victory belongs to the Lord. We have a God who is immeasurably strong, unfathomably wise, unfailingly faithful. And in this spiritual battle that we face, he is for us, and he is working for us, and so we can be confident. When when we say he has brought us this far and he will bring us home, we can be absolutely confident that he will, because the victory belongs to him. So if, if our war is not against flesh and blood, we have real enemies, but they're not flesh and blood enemies. They're spiritual enemies. And if the victory belongs to the Lord then what does that mean for how we fight this war? What does that mean for how we engage in this battle? And this leads us to the third truth today. That is that God has armed us for battle. God has armed us for battle. What I want to do at this point, and turn back to Thessalonians, what I want to do is just scan through this text and see the ways that God uses Paul and, and, and works for the Thessalonians to arm them for this war and to preserve them through this war. And so if you would, look back up at the very first verse of the text, chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, 13. says, 
We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And then he describes the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He says it is the word which is at work in you believers. That, that, that God is doing something in you through his word. His word is, is actively changing you, actively transforming you, actively equipping you. God's word is at work in you. He's sustaining them. He's transforming them. Like, like how, how did the Thessalonians do so well when they were gone? I mean, they weren't there. Paul wasn't there to establish them. Paul wasn't there to disciple them. Why were they doing so well? Because the word of God was at work in them. The word of God was establishing. The word of God was exhorting them. I mean, this is why if, if you don't have the chance to walk with someone through discipleship, but you give them a Bible and you call them to, to, to study this, to, to pray through this, to submit yourself to this, then, then you can be confident that the word of God will establish them. It's the sword of the Spirit in this war. And, and so one, one of the things that God has armed us with is the word of God. Now, second, let's just see another thing here. What, what is it that Paul continually wants to do in this passage? Like, what, what does he want to do for the Thessalonians? He wants to see them, right? He wants to get to them. He, he, he wants to get there and encourage them. Look, look at what he says in 3.2. He sends Timothy to establish them and exhort them in their faith. And then in 3.10, he prays to God that they may get there face to face so that they can supply what is lacking in their faith. So, so Paul wants to get to them so that he can encourage them and help them grow and establish them. And, th- and this shows us the second weapon God's equipped us with. One another. One another. Brothers and sisters who will encourage us and help us and pursue our highest good in love. That's what Paul is in this chapter. Like, like the the emotion of it, for, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown before the Lord? It's you. You're our joy. You're our crown. If, if you are standing fast, we live. Paul is pursuing their highest good. His joy is their good, and he's pursuing it with all that he has. And, and, and that is one of God's weapons that he equips us with. You know, we are not in this UFC-style grudge match with Satan. It's not me versus him in the rain, or in the octagon, right? No, this is a war, each one of us, side by side, with each other, fighting for each other, looking out for each other more than ourselves against these spiritual forces. God has armed us with a community of believers, and as we pursue each other's highest good for the Lord, that's a weapon that God gives us in this warfare. And then finally, how does Paul close this passage? He prays. We've already seen this. He prays. He specifically prays, God, open a door so that I can get to them and so that I can can encourage them. He's essentially praying, God, Satan has stopped me so far, but but, but stop Satan from stopping me. He's praying that way. He's praying against what Satan is doing. But he says, but God, if you don't, I I pray at at a more ultimate level, I just pray that you would transform them and that you would establish them, that you would work love and holiness into their lives, and that you would bring them all the way home to the day that Christ returns. And why does he pray? Because prayer is, is the act of those who know they, they're unable. It's the act of those who know they can't do anything, 
calling on the one who can. It's, it's weakness leaning in on God's omnipotence. And, and Paul's doing that. And so these are the three weapons. The word of God, one another, and prayer. The word of God, one another, and prayer. These are the weapons that God has armed us with for this spiritual battle. Church family, these are unconventional weapons in a war. And that's the whole point. If the victory belongs to the Lord, then the means of that victory need to display that reality. Do you realize that? That, that, that whatever he gives us to fight with, that, that needs to point beyond ourselves to him so that he gets the glory. Th- think about the story of how Israel conquered Jericho. I mean, God said, okay, here's what you're going to do. Walk around the city once a day for six days in a row. Day seven, you walk around that city seven times, and then you just yell as loud as you can. And if you can play the trumpet, blow your trumpet as loud as you can. I have given Jericho into your hand. That plan makes no sense. It's foolish. It's embarrassing. And it displayed the power of God. It displayed that the victory belonged to the Lord. And so just like God called them to walk around the walls of Jericho for seven days, God calls us to fight our spiritual enemy through the unimpressive means of reading our Bibles, of praying, of loving each other. Those things do not seem that powerful. Those things don't don't seem like they're going to win a war. But through God's grace, they will. And the victory will be for his glory. And so this week, let's use the weapons he's given us. Let's, Let's read the word. Let's pray for each other. Let's love each other, knowing that that that's the way that we walk around the wall and that God will bring victory. So we have real enemies. The victory belongs to the Lord. God has armed us for battle. And finally, what's the fourth truth that we need to know this morning? It's that Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won this war. Observe with me that two times in this passage, Paul refers to the return of, of Christ. In verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? And then again in chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, so Paul is clear that Satan is a real enemy who really opposes the church and even is successful sometimes. He, he stopped them. But there's not a hint in Paul that Satan is ultimately going to be successful. There's not not a hint of anxiety that Jesus is not going to return one day and establish his kingdom. Paul is absolutely confident that Jesus will return, will judge his enemies, will save his people, will establish his kingdom on earth forever. How can he be so sure? It's because of what he said in chapter 1. He said that God raised Jesus from the dead. This Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He has already dealt the decisive blow. Think about this. The moment when it seemed like Satan was victorious. Jesus is hanging dead on a cross. That moment is the moment that Jesus crushed Satan's head. 
Because in that death, Jesus was actually opening the way for rebel sinners like you and me to be forgiven of our rebellion, to be, to, to be moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son by, by taking on the curse. Remember in the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve. God brought the curse of death on Adam and Eve, and Jesus bore that curse of death. And then three days later, he defeated death itself. He has already won. Satan is a defeated foe, and Jesus is coming soon, and he's going to pronounce final judgment on the devil. He's already won. And this teaches us something about Satan's schemes. This this is so huge for us to understand, because you might be asking yourself, why is Satan even doing anything then? If he's a defeated foe, then, then how in the world is he active in the world? Why would God allow him to do these things? And here's the thing we learn about Satan through the cross, is that though Satan has his schemes, God always turns them upside down. God always turns the schemes of Satan upside down. Think about the garden. What was Satan doing in the garden? He was attempting to undermine the glory of God. He was attempting to to take these image bearers and to say, God is not good enough. God is not the one you want. And and to undermine that glory. But but how did God turn that on its head? He, He did it by sending his son and, and displaying through the sending of his son that glory in the most lavish, inexpressible way. Through the cross, God's glory is not undermined. It, it is magnified more than it ever would have been apart from that scheme of Satan. God, God turned it on its head. And think about this letter. Paul wanted to get to the Thessalonians, but Satan stopped him. But God turned that on its head because now we have this book. We have the book of 1 Thessalonians now, and and, and God's church has God's word written to us to equip us for this battle. So so Satan was stopping them. He thinks he's successful, but God turns it on its head and uses it against him for his glory and for our good. And that means that whatever Satan is doing today against you, against this church, against your family, whatever he's doing, God is allowing it, and he's turning it on its head for his greater glory and your greater good. Jesus has won this war in the most surprising way. And so we can be confident that every one of his schemes will not just come to nothing, but that God's actually going to use them to contribute to his glory and to your good. It's amazing to think about that that God, in his providence, would allow these afflictions, would give Satan this this leash, because he knows that through it all, his grace will be magnified, his glory will be seen, our joy will be more full because of it. And so we can be confident, be confident today, because Jesus has already won the war. As the music team comes up, I want to to read an exhortation from 1 Peter 5. Jesus is building his church here at Redeemer Church. Jesus is building his church here, in us, through us, and what that means is that, is that we're in a war. We are in a war. We, we, we have spiritual enemies. We have opposition. There, there is an unseen spiritual world that is at war here today. Every time we meet, every time the gospel is preached, every time that we serve each other, love each other, there is warfare going on. The gospel is advancing, and that means Satan is opposing us. 
You are becoming more like Christ. We are becoming more like Christ. And that means that Satan has set his heart on destroying your life. Yet the victory belongs to the Lord and God has armed us for battle and Jesus has already won. So what should we do then? What should we do? Well, this is 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's true. That is true this morning. He is seeking to devour you, seeking to devour one another. He he, he is our adversary. But then Peter says, resist him. Resist him. How, How do we do that? Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. You you resist him through faith. You resist him by looking to Jesus who has already won. You resist him by trusting in the one who has already conquered him. You resist him by trusting in the one who took your sins, who took every ground for accusation that the devil has and, and got rid of it by paying for that guilt. You resist him by putting your faith in him, by taking refuge in the cross. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and sing.